we're going to be looking at science and science falsely so-called. Is this important? Well, it was important enough for Paul to say to his disciple, his successor, Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. I'm sad to say there are very, very many people today who have erred concerning the faith because they have been misled by science falsely so-called. And our universities throughout the world are full of science falsely so-called and ardent, vitriolic evangelists of science, falsely so-called. Well, what is real science? It, uh, it used to be the accepted definition of real science was that branch of the search for knowledge which follows the scientific method. When I was um, at school and at university, almost every science textbook had in the introduction. Science is that branch of the search for knowledge which follows the scientific textbook, which follows the scientific method. You won't find that in textbooks now. You won't find in universities that they are teaching the scientific method. Why? Well, where did the scientific method come from? What is it? It was put forward by Francis Bacon in 1620. And his reason for putting it forward, he said, was nature carries the stamp of the creator, whereas man's reason carries the stamp of his own folly. We will have it that all things are as we in our folly think they should be. That was very much the way it had been for very many years. And um, around about Bacon's time, um, the, the scientists, the people with knowledge, the people who looked in, into these things, were largely in the monasteries. And the story is told of one uh, sort of debate that they were having in one street, they were wanting to work out how many ribs does a donkey have? And they were discussing this and putting forward their arguments. And eventually, one young novice said, But why don't we bring in a donkey and count how many ribs it's got? And he was soundly beaten because that's not the way knowledge is found out. It comes from man's reasoning. And this false way of looking at things, thinking that man's wisdom has got everything needed to know, was the reason why um, Bacon put forward this, uh, this premise. Nature carries the stamp of the Creator, whereas man's reason carries the stamp of his own folly. We will have it that all things are as we, in our folly, think they should be. 
Man has this idea that he's bright enough to work it out. And Bacon put forward the scientific method because man is not bright enough to work it out. And the scientific method follows seven steps. And if these seven steps are not followed, it's not science. The first thing is observation and measurement. If there's no observation and no measurement, science cannot begin. The second step is you search for patterns in the observations and measurements. And then if you can find patterns of, in the observations and measurements, the next step is to propose a hypothesis which will explain these patterns. And once you've got a hypothesis which fits the measurements you've got, then what you do is say, well, if this is true, then what experiment can I do that will prove it or disprove it? And then you do such experiments, and if they confirm your hypothesis, you get more confidence that the hypothesis could be true. And if no experimental results um, uh, go against the hypothesis, if experimental results do not support the hypothesis, then you have to search for a hypothesis which explodes both the old, old and the new. So you have to change it if it doesn't fit the observations you get when you do your experiments. Then if a great deal of experimental evidence supports a hypothesis and non-contradicts it, it can be considered a scientific theory. And if any observation conflicts a hypothesis or a theory, it must be abandoned and a new hypothesis sought. Now, doing this, you're not relying on the wisdom of man, you're relying on God's creation, and then you can get an idea of how his creation works, rather than how you think it ought to work. And this explains why Mendeleev said science begins with measurement. And Albert Einstein said what can be measured is science, everything else is speculation. And this, um, this is all because nature carries the stamp of the creator. Now that creator, as everybody knew from Francis Bacon onwards, is the God of the Bible, the Lord Jesus Christ. But when atheists found that the scientific method works and leads to very useful results, they started infiltrating science and they hated the idea that they relied on the Lord Jesus Christ. And they started saying, oh no, this wasn't the source of science. Science began with the Greeks, the ancient Greeks. They were the first scientists. Well, it is true that the ancient Greeks did observations and they made hypotheses, but there was something which stopped them ever getting to science. They had a whole pantheon of gods and goddesses who got involved in nature. 
They had affairs with handsome heroes and beautiful damsels, and in doing that, they got involved in nature. So if you go start doing experiments on nature to find out how it works, you might be interfering with the gods or the goddesses, and what applies today might not apply tomorrow, so it's dangerous anyway to get involved with experiments, so the Greeks never did experiments. They did mathematics. Pythagoras, for example, did a lot of very useful mathematics which we use today. He also made observations. He, for example, he went to a blacksmith's shop and he heard that the different sized hammers rang different notes. So he made a hypothesis and he said, well, there must be a relationship between the size of the hammer and the notes that it rings. And he made this theory, well, his hypothesis. It was actually wrong, but he never found out it was wrong because he never did any experiments to test it. So he never knew it was wrong. Now, perhaps the greatest philosopher in history was Aristotle. He dealt with almost every field of thought and, um, and whatever, playwriting, um, biology, physics, um, and he was very, very persuasive in his reasoning. And his reasoning was such that everybody said, well, yes, yes, that's the way it must be. And Aristotle's physics was the highest authority in science for 2,000 years. Everybody believed this is the truth. It was so reasonable. But in um, 1450, Gutenberg invented the printing press and started printing. And the prime product of his printing press was the Bible. And his printing made it possible for the Bible to come into the hands of the common people. Until then, people in the monasteries could look at the ancient manuscripts that they had in their libraries, and scholars could come to the monasteries and have a look, but the common person had no idea what the Bible said. They only ever heard what the priest chose to tell them in the church. Now it became possible for everybody to see what God says, and everybody wanted to learn more about this God that they found in the Bible. And uh, there were many people, intelligent people, who read the Bible and wanted to know more about the God in the Bible. And they read things like this, what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, 
even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now, that has been known for ages. David said, I am fearfully and wonderfully made, and this my soul knows right well. Anybody looking at God's creation, seeing how astounding it is, has no excuse for not recognizing there must have been some, some power which created all this. It cannot have happened by itself. And they also found that this God of the Bible is a reasonable God. And he says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. So his creation is likely to work in a reasonable way. Also, he's a law-giving God. And all through the Bible we find reference to his law. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. So we've got a law-giving, reasonable um, God who is to be found in his creation and he's also consistent. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom is no variation or shadow of turning. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today and forever. So God manifests himself in his creation. He is reasonable, law-giving and he doesn't change. So if we look into his creation, we can be confident that if we look hard enough, we will be able to find out the way he ordained everything should work. We can find out more about this reasonable God by looking into his creation and seeing what he tells us. And because of this, Francis Bacon put forward this method of looking for the way God works in a way which puts all the emphasis on the creation, not on our thoughts, which can be as foolish as we are. God's creation tells the true story, and that's where we must look. And any time we found that I, our theories, our hypotheses, do not agree with what nature actually says, then we must abandon it. Look for another idea which does agree with the Creator's creation. Now, once the scientific method was there and available to guide us, people could at last look at Aristotle's physics, which was being taught in all the universities as the utmost. This is the pinnacle of knowledge and subject it to the scientific method. And um, for example, Aristotle made the very reasonable statement that a heavier body 
has a bigger force acting on it when you drop it than a light body, so it will fall quicker. For example, drop a feather and drop a rock, the rock will fall quickest because it is heaviest. Now, it's true that the feather will fall slowly and the rock will fall quicker, but it's not because of what he was reasoning, it's for a completely different uh, reason. And what people did, it's reputed to have been Galileo, I don't know if it was, it might have been, because Galileo was doing experiments um, on physics. But they took a musket ball, which is small, and a cannonball, which is much bigger, both made of the same stuff, went up the Tower of Pisa, and from the side which is leaning, leaning over, they dropped them. Now, according to Aristotle, the musket ball should have dropped very much quicker than the, um, from the, the... The cannonball should have dropped very much quicker than the musket ball, because it's very much heavier. It didn't. They fell at the same speed, hit the ground roughly at the same time. One experiment, and Greek so-called science, proto-science, is wiped out. It does not stand up to the scientific method. And this was astounding because everybody had been indoctrinated with Aristotle and now they have to change their thinking because the scientific method has shown doesn't work. And the reason why the Greeks had never been able to get to the point of doing real science was because they were encumbered with a whole stack of gods and goddesses who were doing things sometimes out of jealousy against one another. Why should you be able to find consistent, reasonable laws in nature when you've got these capricious gods fiddling around in it. It could never have started with the Greeks because they had this load of gods and goddesses. The story goes that Socrates said, look, we look at nature, the only way it could be so uniform is if there was one god. Now, he was accused of heresy, and he was given the alternative of being banished from the country or drinking hemlock, and he chose to drink the hemlock and die. This whole idea of one God, a consistent nature, unacceptable when you've got a pantheon of gods. Now, among the people of the Far East, people in India, for example, even more impossible, because they've got millions of gods. Some of them dealing with the same aspect of nature in conflicting ways. How would you expect anything to work consistently when on every aspect of nature you've got gods pulling to and fro in different directions? Absolutely impossible. The Indians did some mathematics just like the Greeks. Mathematics is built in a mathematician's brain. Science is supposed to be looking at nature. You cannot 
come to science when you're encumbered with all these gods and goddesses. Science couldn't start in Africa either, because in Africa nature is governed by spirits. And the spirits were conjured by witches and witch doctors. And to expect that in our village everything will be the same as in the next village, why should it be? There are different spirits there. There are different witches and witch doctors conjuring them. So, no chance for, Afri for um, science starting in Africa. One might think there was a chance of science starting among the Muslims, because at least they have only one God, so there's a chance of a uniformity in nature. But Allah is capricious. He can change his mind. You know, they don't even know if Muhammad is in heaven or hell. They've no way of knowing because, well, Allah can choose this way or that way and he might do one thing one day and then something else the next. No reason to expect consistency in nature when you don't have a consistent God. So the Muslims also didn't invent science. They preserved the Greek science they had looted from the great uh, library in Alexandria before they burnt it down. And they also did some work in mathematics like the Greeks and the Indians did. But no advance in science. And to expect the atheists to be able to come to science, absolutely crazy. The atheists think, well, things happened by chance. There was some chaos and things by themselves come together to form trees and plants, animals and people. But if this is all happening by chance, why should there be any laws there? You know, this is, this, it's all chance. So there's no chance that science could have come out of an atheist worldview. In fact, the only worldview there has ever been which could allow science to come out is the Judeo-Christian worldview. It's the only worldview that has ever had a consistent, reasonable, law-giving God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's the only set of circumstances which could have led to science. It's the only set of circumstances that could have led to the scientific method. And it is absolutely based on the premise that nature carries the stamp of the Creator. Now, that relies for any kind of credibility on the answer to the great question of life. This is a question which has been asked since the very earliest times. This is something that all the philosophers of the past have looked at why is there something instead of nothing? And throughout history, only two possible answers have ever been put forward. The first is the creation was created by a creator. The other is the creation created itself. And the answer that you choose to the great question of life, determines your whole worldview. 
Now, throughout history, all civilizations had, as a, as a whole, come across the idea, well, the creation must have been created by a creator. Now, in societies throughout history, there have been people who have taken the opposite side and said, well, the creation must have created itself. They've always been in a very small minority until communism. That is the first, shall we say, civilization, the first worldview that's taken over a nation which has had the worldview there is no God, the creation created itself. And communism is built on that worldview. And it shouldn't surprise anyone that communism has proved itself a real failure. But although communism is the first society which has ever had this worldview, there have been people in all societies who have believed the creation created itself. There is no creator. Now, it makes a great difference to your worldview because if the creation was created by a creator, he must have created it for a purpose. You look at this whole creation around us, it's amazing. It's not just a jigsaw puzzle. It is something astounding. So, there must have been some purpose in this creation. If there is a purpose in it, then we, as the apparently highest, most intelligent uh, group on the, in this creation, well, we must have a purpose too. And if we have a purpose, there is the possibility that the Creator may call us to account for what we did with our lives which He gave us. So we need to bear in mind that we may be accountable to the Creator for what we did with the life He gave us. It also means that besides what we can see, there must be something beyond it. What's beyond the physics is metaphysics. There is something we cannot see, some sort of spiritual realm that must be there because otherwise we couldn't be here, but we can't see it. On the other hand, the creation created itself, well, it just happened. So we live in a world of chance. Well, nobody created us, We're just, we just happened, we're our own boss. We're the top authority. We can decide what is good, bad, right, wrong. We're the king of kings. We've got autonomy. We can do what we think is best. And materialism, well, if, there is, if everything just happened, everything is what we can see, hear, feel, touch. If we can't, if we can't do that, if we can't see, touch, feel it, it's a myth, it's not there. And on those two worldviews, you come to a whole completely different way of looking at things. Now, when the scientific method was put forward, we had people like Kepler, 
Now, Kepler was prepared to spend years of his life poring over Brahe's observations and measurements of the movement of the heavenly bodies to try and find out what are the laws governing the movement of the planets which Brahe had been observing for so long. And there he was with no computer, no calculator, a pen that you dip in the ink and some paper to work on, and for years he was prepared to look for patterns in Brahe's observations and measurements and look for a hypothesis which explained why those observations were like that for years. And he was prepared to do it because he was confident that the creation's creator follows laws. It's consistent, it's reasonable, so there must be an answer. And after years of pouring over those observations and measurements, he came to the conclusion that the planets move around the sun in elliptical orbits. Now, if uh, we had an atheist and he looked at the measurements and he said, well, they could mean anything. He wouldn't have bothered to do all that work. Then we come across Isaac Newton. One of his biographers said, were it not for Newton's God, he would never have gone looking for his laws. And he did look for his laws. He spent less time doing science than he did in looking into the Bible. He's, he wrote far more on his analysis of the Bible than he wrote on his analysis of the creation. But even so, he worked out the laws of motion, gravity, um, statics. He worked out uh, the laws of optics. He did an, an amazing amount of work in mathematics. He needed, um, he needed a way of calculating dynamics, so he invented the calculus. And all this because he was looking for the works of the God that he believed in. Then um, we have Leonard Euler. He attended Bible study every day of his life. When he was young, his father took the uh, Bible studies. And he was in the cradle in the room every single night when his father took the Bible study. When he grew up, he took the Bible studies. When he grew older, his children, all his children and his grandchildren came to his Bible study. When he was old, he went blind. He still carried on in his Bible studies because he knew he had it in his head, every word. He um, developed Newton's work, his dynamics. He extended it to other things like hydrodynamics and aerodynamics. He extended Newton's calculus to um, partial differential equations. Um, and he, for 50 years, more than a third of all the work in mathematics, uh, physics, engineering, mechanics, was Euler's work. And his development of Newton's mechanics allowed almost anything to be analysed. And then we come across uh, James Clerk Maxwell. 
He was a Methodist lay preacher, a very great scientist. He looked into uh, field theories, he looked into um, things like uh, radio waves, radar, microwaves, all the things which enable modern communication. He looked into electro, uh, electrodynamics, which deals with practically everything to do with electricity and magnetism. Work which has allowed an enormous amount of development. And he said he found all his ideas for how nature works by looking at the way God works in the Bible. And these people, looking into nature, found useful things. Newton looked into optics and he found that because of the way, way uh, the nature works, it would never be possible to make a really good telescope. You would have to use mirrors and he made the first mirror telescope. All the telescopes being produced now, used in astronomy, they're all mirror telescopes. The Hubble telescope, it's a mirror telescope. And how did it get there? Well, the dynamics, to put it up, using Newton's mechanics, as developed by um, Euler. Uh, and, and the same with aircraft. How does it fly? Well, the aerodynamics was all worked out by Euler. And these things cannot work without um, control and communication, all based on the works of Maxwell. But, atheists saw the value of all this work and they started coming in. And um, they started taking over science in about 1840. Um, as pointed out by Brian G. Wallace, the word scientist entered the English language in 1840. A few individuals earned a living by doing research with most of the investigations carried out by gentlemen of wealth and leisure. People like Jewel, he was an industrialist. He did his science on the side and he did very valuable science. At that time, a handful of American scientists were taking steps to transform their status and image and separate themselves from the professionals, from those they considered amateurs. The major tactics used to create this artificial separation has been the deliberate use of technical jargon and complex mathematics. And needless to say, those whose aim is status and advancement, they're not Christians. These were atheists. And the tools they used for this separation, the erection of higher and higher barriers to the comprehension of scientific affairs, is a threat to an essential characteristic of science. It's openness to outside examination and appraisal. And because of this, modern theoretical physics has become to a large degree little more than an elaborate farce. And I can assure you, it's not only theoretical physics which has descended into an abyss. It's almost the whole of science has followed downwards in this path. Now, this 
American group organizing science into an establishment was in America, but in Europe, this drift towards secular humanism started even earlier. And we had people like uh, James Hutton saying, well, the earth is actually millions of years old. Darwin, his disciples, saying, yes, it's millions of years old and producing textbooks in geology putting forward this idea all with Aristotle type reasoning we had people like Darwin who um, hated God and he, he worked on Lyle's basis he said well if you've got millions of years to work with we can have evolution and the atheists jumped on this and uh, people like Arthur Keith noted evolution is unproven and unprovable. We believe it because the only alternative is special creation. And we can't have special creation because that relies on a god and we don't want a god. We have Julian Huxley, who's a very influ influential uh, person in science and his aim was to take Christianity and the Bible out of every aspect of education. And we came across um, people realizing what's going on. Abraham Kuyper, a Dutch theologian, said, look, the way we're going, we're going to have two different kinds of science. Regenerate science and unregenerate science. Well, nobody uses those terms now, but he's dead right. Science has become two completely different spheres. There's one which um, can be called creation science because that is the science which is based on the creation, is the work of the creator. And there is secular science, which is based on the idea there is no creator, creation created itself. And they have completely different attitudes, different methods. Creation science searches for the truth about God's creation. Any idea may be considered. Anyone's welcome to pursue the quest for knowledge. And the scientific method is indispensable. On the other hand, the secular science, they say, there's no such thing as absolute truth. That would mean a God. There is no absolute truth. We do not search for truth. There's no such thing. We search for useful theories. And non-secular ideas may not be considered. It has to be materialistic, or we can rule it out straight away as rubbish uh, religion. Um, there is control, censorship, and regulation. Does that ring a bell? Does that sound like something we are getting very used to? And the scientific, is method. scientific method is subservient to secular theories. I want to give a lecture in Heidelberg in Germany, and at the end of it, one of the scientists from the Max Planck organization stood up and said, but you're talking about the scientific method. Nobody does that anymore. Why does nobody do it anymore? Because secular science has taken over and it's now, now dealing with real science. It's gone back to Aristotle. And it's instead of working as the scientific method requires, the creation was created by a creator. 
They are working on the understanding the creation created itself. And creation created itself demands one, a naturalistic creation of the cosmos. You cannot have secular science without a naturalistic creation of the cosmos. And you must have a naturalistic creation of life. You have to have evolution. They have nothing to do with real science. Real science stands on the foundation, the creation created the science. We are looking at the way his creation works. Secular science says we need to find out how creation created itself and how life came to life all by itself. It is completely different to real science. We are taught science in school and in university. Nobody ever tells you this is not the science of Newton and Kepler and uh, Maxwell. You're given the impression it's just a development. Now we've got to know more things, it's more modern. It's not true. It's completely different. And I think we should be very much aware of what Paul said to his disciple Timothy. Keep that which is committed to thy trust. Avoiding profane and vain babblings of oppositions of science, falsely so-called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. And many have. There are people like Richard Dawkins. He's just a particularly famous example. They are dedicated to taking all the students who come into their universities and breaking their faith in the Bible. They're dedicated to do it and they are being very successful. And they are using the lie that this false science that they are proclaiming is the truth. Among themselves, they don't claim it's the truth. They say there is no such thing as truth. We don't seek the truth. We look for useful theories, that's all. But they, to break the faith of anybody coming in, say, oh, you're, you're looking at myths and fairy stories. And many have lost their faith through these babblings of scientists falsely so-called. 